I think that was such a powerful video uh, and, and it really tees up where I wanna land today. And we've been in this book study on 1 Thessalonians where the Apostle Paul has fled Thessalonica because he makes a three week splash. I mean, three Sabbaths he's there and gets run out of town. And so he's got this personal investment in these people. And so he's writing from Corinth and, and with this great concern after making such a big splash and he's like, oh my gosh, these young babes in Christ, I hope that they will stay the course. So he sends his apprentice, Timothy, and Timothy comes back with this glowing report. And so 1 Thessalonians is Timothy's report and Paul's feedback loop, which is a kind of a, a really hopeful letter. That, in fact, the word hope uh, is painted in every chapter because the, ultimately the hope is in Christ's second coming, in his return. But rather than sit idly by, there was stuff they could do today and now. Now, the reason I wanted to show that video was because I think when we talk about hope, we seem to lack teeth when we talk about hope. We kind of like, I don't know, I hope so. As if we have no control over it. And I would like to suggest to you biblical eternal Christian hope is not helpless. It's not wishful thinking. There's something so much more. And so when we talk about the Christian life, we have this beautiful picture of things we can do here and now and knowing where it all ends up. And so you might want to open your Bibles with me, maybe open up an app. If you have the Mission Hills app, there's an outline included in it. If you're following along at home, I encourage you maybe to open your Bible up or the app and, and follow along in the outline. You can take some notes. Um, but it's like this. If we have hope, then it should inform our lives. If we really believe in something, then certainly that can kind of create a new trajectory for how we live, how we act, um, how we trust, and all sorts of things. So just for example, if we know that Christmas is coming, we have a tendency because we want to make plans. So what do we do? We go buy gifts. It's kind of the natural thing like, oh, I, 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 I probably need to make a plan. But if you know that summer's coming, you probably want to go ahead and make a plan for a family vacation. And I would say that just so you know, studies show that the actual planning of a summer vacation is, is more um, satisfying and you get more dopamine than the actual trip itself. <laughs> now, if you're rushing up against a deadline, you tend to want to work a little bit harder. You might work longer hours. One informs the other. It's an if and a then clause. Now, if you know that she's going to be mad because you're late again, you set a reminder and you don't show up empty handed. There's certain things that you get in your head that when you know it's going to happen, you choose differently. You make plans accordingly. And so that's what we're talking about when we're talking about being rooted in hope. First Thessalonians 5 paints a wonderful picture for how we can practice hope. See, the secret to being rooted in hope is the practice of hope. It's not wishful thinking. It's not just hoping for some outcome like we're helpless. There are things that we can do in the here and now. Now, you and I get really infatuated with return on investment. We love us some ROI. 
We love to know that we can control outcomes. But can we just say God is in charge of outcomes? And all we're invited to do is participate in the seed-sowing faithfulness of God and trust him with the big picture. And that is more than just idly waiting by. And so I want to look at, at this passage in 1 Thessalonians. We're going to kind of work our way through this. This is the last of the chapter where Paul's writing and he gets down to like a bullet point list. Um, and it's like he's writing these final words with a sense of urgency, but you can tell. He uses this term brethren, um, this, this kind of loving response. This is a guy who's invested. This is a guy who's personally connected and wants to cheer on their success. He says, now brothers, about times and dates we need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief at the night. While people are saying peace and safety, in other words, it's all good. Can't we just like one love all? Yeah, no. Destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, they will not escape. Paul is not messing around, but the first thing we see coming out of this is to practice a kind of um, waiting. Now, that sounds a little contrarian, practice waiting, right? So we think about waiting as like, uh, I can't sit idly by, so I'm going to go for the nearest dopamine hit. Where is my phone? Where is my social media feed? And we don't like imagination. We just like to kind of do this sort of doom scrolling through life. And what I'm saying is, this is not idly waiting by for something to change. When he talks about this here, it's, it's, it's much more of an active posture, like a watchfulness. So waiting is a watchfulness. It's like this. He uses the analogy of labor pains. Um, and he's talking to those who don't believe. Don't be surprised by this coming. This isn't like some kind of curse, but you shouldn't be surprised at these pains. I remember seeing before our first child coming home from work, Laurel was going into full-blown nesting. Did any other moms do this? I mean, she had pulled out our oven and our refrigerator and was cleaning underneath. This was going to be a completely germ-free home. She was preparing like no one's business because, well, maybe she was just worried that her child was going to get one germ and God wasn't going to bless him with an immune system. But we were doing a deep clean, or she was. And I came home like, are you okay? Uh, I, I, did your water break? Uh, but this is like no joke. Here's the thing. He talks about the Lord's return, and I want you to understand this. In the Old Testament, he talks about the day of, of judgment. Um, uh, and, and the thing that's interesting, or, or the day of the Lord's return, was always going to be synonymous with the day of judgment. But in the New Testament, it's not referred to as the day of judgment. It's the day of redemption. So the idea of judgment is not something that we should actually fear. Like, oh, you're going to get it. But there is this posture of watchfulness so that when the day is approaching, you're not surprised and, and acting like no one told me. There are things we can do in the here and now in terms of the faithfulness of God to prepare. So we choose then, um, God didn't ever intend for us to suffer wrath, which is why he makes the provision of his son, Jesus. And so we didn't choose, we choose to trust God at work even when the darkness is around us. The second thing we do 
is, and this is verses 4 through 11, is that we practice what it means to be in the light. So if we talk about practicing watchfulness or waiting, we're really talking about a watchfulness. It's a much more active than a passive approach because we are not in the darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day, and we do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us be like others. Let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of the salvation of, of Paul's authorship here. But for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as the fact that you are already doing. So in Christ, he's saying you're not in darkness. In fact, in Christ, you have a new identity. And this new identity informs how you're now able to see other people. This new identity informs how you're able to trust, contrarian to every self-preservation instinct you might have. But when we become new in Christ, we're like, I'm going to do this as an act of worship. My life is no longer my own. So I choose to give this way. I choose to host this way. I choose to serve this way because that's who God is. We choose to live more vulnerably. We choose to live more sacrificially because we choose to identify with the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. And so um, what we see coming out of this, I think, is kind of, I see two approaches to faith. There's one kind of faith, and this is where he would talk about the light, where we approach faith with a very active and engaging and seeking and kind of a hungry sort of way versus I'm trying to live my something in the mountain moving capacity. And I, the, maybe the two analogies that you come to mind are, what is the, when you go to rehab, it's all about strengthening. It's all about getting better or getting stronger than you were before. See, I think church needs to play roles in both of those areas. But what ends up happening is that we get sedentary in our faith and we just get so comfortable as the place to get well. God wants to do something in the training and the equipping of the saints that requires faith and engagement. We're called to be children of the light, to not live in the shadows. And that might be just a huge revolutionary way of thinking about, I don't know, how you tip or how you file your taxes or how you close business deals or court new customers. There's a whole way to think about going above and beyond for the Lord's sake, not for financial means. Do we trust God with our reputation? I just want to walk in the light. And we're called to be children of light. That's what it means to live in this new identity. This is how we practice hope. This is the slide for practicing light. I'm doing it myself today because Damaris is over there. And so the third thing is practicing hope. And I saw this image and I thought, that's a perfect image. Standing out in a dry field but waiting because it's going to rain. It makes me think about uh, the story of Elisha. And there's been this long drought. And that doesn't look like a great solution, especially when it's just this little dot on the horizon. But that represented God's provision. 
And friends, if you could hold on to the promise of a cloud the size of a man's fist, the drought's going to end. God is going to provide. God will show up. It won't necessarily be in our timing, and it won't necessarily be as we had prayed for. But there is hope on the horizon. And so the way we begin to practice hope, Paul just runs down this list, and he starts talking about these things. And he just bullet points it out, but I'm going to read it for you. So I ask you to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard um, in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle, those who aren't lifting a finger, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient in every, uh, with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. He's talking about how to practice hope. Hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is an active doing. And he's giving us a whole grocery list to practice in being hopeful. Not because we, we and go, God, my life is only but an offering for you. And so he paints this picture of what it means to be a peacemaking person to keep the peace. He talks about people in authority over us. We've got lots of people over us. In this case, he was talking about spiritual leadership, but we all have authority over us. And the question becomes, what's your greatest witness when you don't understand or agree with leadership over you? Does it become a soapbox stage to get on social media and rant all over the place? Or are you able to follow Christ when we don't understand and be respectful and be thoughtful and maybe even be part of a solution. Paul is painting a radical picture for how we practice hope. But then he goes on, he says, be joyful always. Really? No, that's hard. Pray continually, huh? Can I just not ever say amen and then it's like I'm still going? Give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put the spirit, put out the spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to good. Avoid every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Love, Paul. So he gives us this list, rejoice every more, because, well, let's just be honest, gratitude is a discipline. Um, and I would say that being a part of a church helps, because when I come in and I see others able to celebrate, this is why I cannot work out my faith in isolation. This is one that is not necessarily natural response to my daily living. But if I come in and, and I go through the discipline of worship, it, it, it realigns my heart. And so that's why I say rejoice evermore. And Paul says, pray without ceasing. What does it mean to pray without ceasing? I would say a couple of things. One, in big and small things. Prayer is sometimes asking God for things. But a lot of times, prayer is asking God about things. And you don't need an immediate answer. But it creates this dialogue much like you would when you have a, a child working with his head, and it's always, can I have a snack? Why did the divorce happen? Why is it that people think so differently than us? And now we start, that's intimacy, and that's intimacy with God. 
is practicing the kind of hopefulness where we come to God and pray without ceasing. I would encourage you throughout your day to have this ongoing dialogue with God. Ask God about things as much as you ask Him for things. And then he says, in everything give thanks. You know, one of the rabbis has this similar way and would say things, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Doesn't that sound familiar? Um, Sometimes our hearts are so full of joy, but sometimes it's so full of sadness. But we love him in happiness and sadness because we understand ultimately that God redeems. It's interesting, I'm, and I'm going to give you a, a little bit of, of uh, Hebrew, and it says, Damzo la tova. Damzo la tova. Even in, even this is for good. Damzo la tova. And it's an interesting way, it's a wise way to reflect on the tragedies and the crisis and, and the difficulties of life. Because they understand that whatever we're encountering today is not the end of the story. And the reason that we can practice hope is that regardless of the difficulty of today, we know how it, 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 we win in the end. God overcomes. But here's the real reason is that God, through Christ, is actively redeeming all things. Did God intend for the darkest parts of your life to occur, to the tragedies to occur? Did God ever intend for my dad to have a big, big break? And so maybe you can think back of the times in your life that you've mourned so for others who begin to feel the, 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 the sharp edges of this. Even in this is good. See, the reason we practice hope is because God is actively redeeming all things. One of the ways we want to practice hope today in that redemptive spirit is through communion.